aboard the two items up for review at Pacifica.org. You are welcome to share comments with the National Board at PNB at Pacifica.org. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is March the 24th, I think it's 24th, 2015. Uh Aha, it's still Women's International History Month. Um, I had planned a tough rant, (laughs) titled it, Feminism is Not. A hygiene spray. It's about the war on women. You know, there's a world war on uh, half the population. But then, then I I stopped and I listened to the radio at dawn today. A oh, hundred and fifty-two dying in one more plane crash. Then I tried to write. A eulogy of some sort. Uh, Lately, it's just not possible to speak of the unspeakable. The bell tolls and the bell tolls. I find it difficult to uh, to live in the... uh, the time that I'm living in, I think I just want to look back. I want to remember the past and see if I can go back there and find out, was it any better? So, I found a story written exactly, exactly 40 years ago today. (laughs) That means I was... Forty-one years old, things were more fun in the old days, or I was. (laughs) Never mind. This is called, Now It Is Today. I, Teresa Timeless, cannot get up in the morning. I have two sons and three lovers, and still, I Do not get up in the morning. (sighs) Friday morning I got up because the telephone rang. It was my uh, son, Sam, calling from his high school. (laughs) 
They wouldn't let him in without an excuse. I told old Miss Stopwatch, watch, the attendance person, I told her Sam overslept. She said that was all very well, but she would appreciate it if I would put that in writing and get a note to her on Monday. Now, I don't know how the hell Sam even manages to get to school before seven every morning. My younger son, Simon, goes sometime around noon. Split sessions. I never have the apartment to myself, which is fairly gruesome. I can't even take a nap, which is another reason I can't get up in the morning. I had a class in college once, 1954. It was supposed to start at eight in the morning. I can't even remember the subject anyway. After the phone call, I took some Valium and went back to bed. Simon crawled out to the kitchen and made me a cup of coffee. He is twelve. He can cope, but he'd rather not. He mostly sings old World War II songs and carves little wooden boats. He sings about slow boats to China. Friday morning, he kept singing over and over. I shot the sheriff. I did not shoot. The deputy, he brings me lukewarm coffee, tells me to get my butt out of that bed and ride the B-A-R-T to eternity, for Lord's sake. I tell him to shut his face and fix the muffins and marmalade, he says. Breakfast is El Barfo, as far as he is concerned, and as for me, I eat too much anyway, and I'm getting to look like the great white whale. Free association is our downfall. Uh, he gives me about two inches of fresh, squeezed Orange juice. Simon loves to squeeze oranges. I tell him this is doubtless a sublimation. These are the only ways we know to express our love. I suppose we are practicing for the time when love may really turn to loathing. Sam says, this is inevitable. There is no escape. Fate, destiny, retribution, and so forth. Sam is Fifteen, almost. He is a football player and all that stuff, so I suspect that somewhere deep in my subscript, I have a faith or reverence for the warrior. My sons are equally divided at this point. Sam is a conquering hero and Simon a suffering martyr. Adolescence are mainly confined to these two roles. Like the bourgeois and the beatnik, they are perhaps two sides of the coin. Sam says he had a feudal father, a Marxist mother, a bourgeois brother, and, symbolically speaking, 
a sexist sister. He says he is planning a strategic retreat. He won't say where. He looked at me hard the other night, leaned over and said, You are not what I mean. You are not what I mean at all. His English teacher says he is a troublemaker. I, Teresa Timeless, was once upon a time an English teacher. But that was here in America. Uh, and so it could not be. It was around the time of the War of the Words, called by certain journalists the Free Speech Movement. My students were black and blue. Nothing I knew about language or freedom was of any use to them. I admitted it. Oh, I took courses in African literature and history, and I hung out with the underground at Merritt College in Oakland before it was raped. Uh, but I was only a missionary. I thought I had the power and privilege of a white man and the compassion of a black woman, but I was a fossil and a female fossil at that. In my classroom, I suggested we divide into groups. It was the fashion. I suggested three groups, martyrdom, sabotage, and those who stand and wait. The principal caught us and nailed the desks to the floor facing front. He took down the posters and asked, Who was this Paul Roberson anyway? The principal was a rather large black man who used to play for the Redskins or the Rednecks or one of those teams. He got a report from a student saying, I had used the word black in the classroom now. This was in 1968. He told me that the students were too young to understand, and then he heard one of my students talking about African heritage, and he called me into his office to show me the reading scores of all the public schools in the United States, and... Uh, just how my students rate it. After I slammed the door to his office, he said I was emotionally unstable. My students asked me, how come the black teachers didn't teach any of that black poetry and stuff? And how come I was so interested in black culture? Did I want to be black? Well, the black teacher said the students couldn't handle freedom and my skirts were too short. Even the teacher's union, when I got called downtown to meet the man at the administration building, uh, even he, the union advisor, he told me, dress Republican. One day... Roosevelt Jefferson said to me, What can you give me 
Can you give me money? Roosevelt's right, of course. Money is all that matters if you haven't got it. After the revolution of 1969, I lurched into mysticism. I took a can of spray paint and I wrote on the walls. To think you can be rich and not act rich is to think you can be blind and not act blind. Oscar Wilde, I think, said that. Anyway, I had no money. I got a job typing for some psychiatrists, uh, a small job. Uh, they were bughousers of the old school. Uh, the best of it is that now I don't go to work until noon. That's the thing. I mean, I might get up in the mornings if there were something going on, if I had a train to catch. A real train that was going somewhere. Time lag, perhaps, or time warp. You can't catch a jet plane like you can a freight train. I am slowing down a lot. I need a passion to get me going again. <laughs> But now, always, I am tired. Without fatigue, the psychiatrists call this depression. I think it is not important what anyone calls it. It is here, and it will not go away, and it is not just for me. It is the psychic depression of decadence which has come to this place and time. It is what happens to people who ignore their artists and deny their children. It is a terminal case of involutional melancholia which comes from within and cannot be cured by TV or psychotherapy or anything but a creative life which is hard to come by in a country where it doesn't pay to do anything for yourself. I, Teresa Timeless, no, there is no time but political time, no life but political life. But I pretend, I pretend I can escape into subjective life, build my own internal spiritual world, I have traded my sense of sin for a sense of drift. Sign of the times. I take the BART subway to the Café of the Golden Calf and drink more morning coffee with the other time travelers. It is almost 10.30. Still, I cannot seem to wake up. <clears throat> On the wall is written the ballad of the Golden Calf. Orange trees in Eden, give us this day our daily dread terror in the waiting room, all of us jive time, all of us babes of the bath water, tangled in Ophelia's damn willow weeds, worn to drown, listen to her coffeehouse confession with those vine leaves in her hair. The dark was light enough for dreams, we crucified the royal opposition, put Alice on the throne, face to face, 
darkly through the glass, face to face. Humpty Dumpty, not even capable of disillusion, falling, falling, bleeding on the blueprints. Blood-blown friend of Puff the Magic Dragon, lived by the sea. There is rain, the faces of the people, their eyes like gunshot wounds. A black Bolshevik reads to me from the newspapers. Eldridge Cleaver wants to come home again. Cleaver is sick of Paris and poverty and his wife and two kids. He wants money for his book, Soul on Ice. He wants all of the bourgeois bunk in Berkeley. He wants to be an armchair philosopher of the left. He is 39. He wants to quit. <laughs> the black Bolshevik, who is reading to me from the papers, he gets a little maudlin. I join in and say, oh, hell, who cares? Who cares who killed Bobby Hutton? He was only 17. Teachers in my school said he was a dropout. His little kid sister went to that school. She only got a C in eighth grade English. I mean, what can you expect? Bobby wouldn't take his shorts off all the other Panthers. Stripped stark. But Bobby kept his shorts on so the police blew him up to heaven because he might have had a gun in his shorts. Eldridge Cleaver stayed on earth, stark naked. Well, the Bolshevik says, what am I on anyway? His friend at the next table says, I am always talking about dark meat, so it is easy to see what I am after. I look out the window at the rain and the street people and the trees. Last time Simon came home from a week in the mountains, I found him weeping. He yelled at me, told me no, he wasn't crying. I had to cry, too, to get him to admit he was crying. He was crying, he said, because of the streets. I asked the men why we do not plant fruit trees in the streets. What about the movement to turn lawns into vegetable gardens? And I keep trying to turn the conversation in this direction, thinking of Simon weeping like that, but it's no use. Talk turns again to my alabaster ass and to the limits of my libido, even the Bolshevik says. That's where it's at, all right. That's what all this women's lib is about. Their libidos have been liberated, and we just can't come up to it, man. I give up. I confess that men are undersexed. This seems to be what they want to hear. Sexism is more confusing than racism. Always the oppressor hates the oppressed. It is the master who hates the slave, I ask. 
an old mulatto what it is we are talking about anyhow. He says women still love their oppressors, and that's certainly no way out. What shall we love then, I ask him? Yourselves or your children, he tells me. Who do you love, I ask him? I am an old mule, he says, the offspring of a white jackass and a black mare. I am a colored man. I love God. But what about sex, I ask him. What about it, he says. I must love a man, I tell him. What's that got to do with sex, he says. I can see across the street a boarded building near the bookstore. There is spray can graffiti here and there. In the middle, in red, is painted the word enjoy. <laughs> It occurs to me that I cannot talk with these men. Don't know how. I go outside and visit the shops. <laughs> anyway, finally, finally, I find another coffee house and a woman who lives in a gypsy camp. I ask her if she has seen Tanya or any of that crowd. She says, oh, you mean Rosebud. No, I am not talking about mist anymore. I am interested in knowing if we may hope for a hard hat revolution. "'cause I'm tired of waiting around. <laughs> "'By one o'clock, I'm sitting behind an IBM electric typewriter, "'carelessly turning out progress notes "'and hospital discharge summaries on mental patients. <laughs> "'The first tape concerns a patient who maintains "'she is the original Piltdown woman. "'Since no one will release her from the hospital, "'there is no way she can prove her identity.' to the satisfaction of her archaeology professor, her husband, her son, or the other male patients and staff on her ward. Next, there is a direct transcription of an interview with an office patient. I privately titled it Frigidity Made Simple or Send the Bill to D.H. Lawrence. It's the voice, the words of a young woman pleading. Oh, for Christ's sake, doctor, he had his damn bonsai tree in the bathtub when I got there. I had to hold a paper bag for the trimmings when the bag was full. He sent me out to the garbage to dump the twigs and stuff. He told me to remember to bring back the bag that night. In bed with him, I dreamt he was standing behind me in the lineup at the bank as I was trying to write out my life, anyway, I think it was my life, on wooden ice cream spoons or popsicle sticks, he pushed me out of the line before I could cash them in. At breakfast, I asked him why we never went anywhere anymore, never went anywhere together, he said, who the hell did I think I was all the time, Joan Crawford, for God's sakes? I said, I thought I was Sappho at Stonehenge. He said, who needs it? <laughs> uh, 
A patient in the doctor's waiting room greets me with his ritual statement. We must love one another or die. I answer with my ritual reply. We must love one another and die. <laughs> this story is so long, I'm going to have to cut the middle of it out. I didn't realize how long it was. I used here in this story all kinds of, let's call them uh, myths, legends. Uh, I used them to, uh, what is it, describe the things and the people uh, in those days in the 70s, you know. Mary and Joseph and, <laughs> and the Greek choruses, they were all around us in those days, yes. On a clear day you can see San Pablo. Ah, yes. Many, 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 many references to the music of that time. It was a time I, I had thought that we were all happy and celebrating in those days, but obviously, very quickly, quickly, very quickly, we saw that things were not going to end in a glorious revolution. <laughs> yes, this ain't rock and roll, this is genocide, ladies. Uh -huh. Ah, yes, so many words here that I cannot use because FCC still spank. Ah, anyway, this middle section ends when I leave the lockup ward in what was then the uh, psychiatric ward at Herrick Hospital. Uh, and uh, I talk about keeping the key in a safe place because sometimes the attendants on the ward would tease me and, uh, you know, pretend they weren't going to let me out again. Uh, the next section of this story is about having dinner with uh, a gentleman friend. Uh, we discussed the book Leftover Life to Kill. It was the story written by Caitlin Thomas after Dylan Thomas died. Uh, and... Uh, he says, yes, he says, that's the one left over life to kill. I say, there wasn't any. What? Life left over? I told him. No life after Dylan died. Then I just have another glass of wine, and I tell Jake, my friend Jake, I am only involved with those women who have transcended the bourgeois love ethic and no longer throw themselves on their husbands or their lovers' funeral pyres or commit sooty over lost love. Even Dorothy Parker is beginning to give me a pain, I tell him. Even Sylvia Plath, for that matter. I get belligerent then and tell him he is phallocentric. He can only see women as they mirror men. We can't get out of your imaginations, I yell. We don't know what is real. We're underwater most of the time. How in hell can fish tell if it's snowing? <sighs> Why should they care, he answers. <laughs> well, 
Well, my love, I say, it's not your fault you live in a vault. It's not your fault you personalize everything and have no objectivity or sense of justice, you seething, paranoid dumbbuck. You cannot get hold of the broad overview. Only the androgynous mind can grasp the whole. Gertrude Stein could see the whole thing at a glance. That's why she always lived in France. That old covered wagon says Jake. I quote someone else. I heard like Stonehenge we go on and on in this way till all the pizza is gone and the wine bottle is empty. This story finishes with Gertrude Stein's spin on uh, <laughs> how things are between the men and the women. I'll save that for another time. I'll be back on the air next week at this same time till then go easy this has been Jennifer Stone till then go easy and if you can't go easy go as easy as you can darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadow Dr. Mario Martinez is coming to Berkeley and Oakland to present the Mind-Body Code, how to change the beliefs that limit your health, longevity, and success. A clinical neuropsychologist who lectures worldwide on the impact of cultural beliefs on our health and longevity, Martinez will appear Wednesday, March 25th, in Berkeley at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way. Dr. Michael Lenore will host... On Friday evening, March 27th, Mario Martinez will speak in Oakland's First Congregational Church, 